Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Crawl. Sebastian and I am here with Troy. Hello. And welcoming back to the podcast, Richard. Hello. Uh, do you have any f- comics coming out soon that you'd like to uh, plug? Well, thank you. Um, nothing I can announce just yet. I have a new um, book that I'm going to be doing as a web comic that's in the works. Um, I, I turn in the manuscript for a novel the same publisher so if we can talk about that in the future cool um and fear book club is, is still the thing it's been out for about a month now and i'm told it's it's doing pretty well we don't know if we're going to do a second one yet um i think they're still waiting to get some more figures but apparently the the reorders are are pretty healthy on it which my publisher takes to mean that there's good word of mouth about the book so uh, i hope that's true and if anyone's listening to this and checks out the book i hope you like it and if you don't can find me online and yell at me and I'll, I'll buy it back from you. All my comics have a money back guarantee, but I haven't had to buy one back yet. So I, I think you'll like it. Awesome. This is going to be an exciting conversation because the three of us have convened to talk about the 1983 sci-fi fantasy epic crawl yes. by Peter Yates. Now, this is a movie I know both of you have some enthusiasm for. Richard, why don't we start with you? Give us a little bit of your history with Krull. It's uh, one of the first movies I remember seeing in the theater. I looked up the release date. It came out two days after my fifth birthday. And I remember both my parents taking me to see it, which was kind of a rarity. Usually it's my dad taking me to movies like this. Um, but I, I loved it. 
it was pretty intense and I felt all the feels while watching it and it always stayed with me and I'm sure I saw it when it was on HBO and then there was probably a fallow period in my life where I, I didn't know anything about Crawl. And then when it came out on DVD, <laughs> it was a pretty robust DVD with a lot of extras and behind the scenes stuff and I sort of fell in love with it all over again. So huge Crawl fan. Had you seen Crawl before Star Wars or after Star Wars? It would have been after my grandmother had what I can only assume was a bootleg VHS of uh, A New Hope. I must have been probably three or so when I started watching that. Wow. That is young. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that says about my parents and my grandmother. I mean, obviously she was uh, a video pirate, but uh, other than that. Troy, how about you? What is your history with Krull? I just want to say I am always amazed when I hear people on your podcast talk about how they saw some of these films in the theaters because... A film like Kroll would never play in my hometown, <laughs> which is probably why I always considered this to be like a Golan and Globus movie. Yeah. And it wasn't until you suggested doing it on this podcast that I realized that it was actually this big budget, you know, blockbuster film that they were planning to come out and compete with Return of the Jedi. I saw it on video, like most of the stuff like this, um, and I would have been about 10 or 11 when this came out. So I was, I was hardcore into this movie and it's, it's weird. I totally, um, remember I had the, uh, the storybook and the Marvel, um, super comic. Yes. Hmm. Which I looked at endlessly. So I kind of remember the, the Marvel super comic almost more than the movie itself. So I saw it like once on video and then I had that that comic that I would look at over and over again. But I loved it. It was totally weird. It was definitely had that kind of fever dream quality to it. I just ate it up. It was like sword and sorcery with laser beams and things coming out of space. I was all over that shit. Yeah, I missed the crawl craze <laughs> by a few years. <laughs> Not that there was a crawl craze. I was already 13 when this came out, and I remember seeing Return of the Jedi that summer, and I didn't like Return of the Jedi, so I wasn't about to jump into crawl after feeling disappointed with where sci-fi fantasy movies were headed. It should be also said that at this time I was sort of transitioning from being a nerdy kid to a kid who was into like heavy metal and hanging out with the cool kids. You were a teenager. Yeah, so like two years before, if Crawl had come out, I would have definitely seen it in the theater. But at this point, I was trying to be cool. I might have tried my first cigarette or something. <laughs> so I wasn't doing Crawl. And to your point, Troy, I remember seeing like the posters and stuff for it. And I thought it was sort of like a low rent affair, like a Golan and Globus or something. That's always what I considered this movie, like to be low budget. It wasn't until watching it now again, which... Which is strange that I haven't seen it in a really long time. I actually never owned this on disc. I, I can't believe that. But I didn't realize that this was such an expensive movie. Well, there was a lot of stuff that came out around this time, like the sword and the sorcerer. And there were some other like low, like the battle beyond the stars, the Corman movies. Yeah. It felt like one of those. I always kind of put this side by side with your Right. Like it, it mm. just felt like one of those movies and all of those movies were so low budget. So 
I just kind of grouped this in with all the rest of those. Right. So it's a real shock to learn that this movie, which was directed by the British director Peter Yates, had a $47 million budget, (laughs) which in 1983, that is a lot of money. I don't think Return of the Jedi cost that, or I know that Empire Strikes Back didn't cost that much. And it ended up grossing total $17 million. So worldwide, that's oh, all it made. God. Yeah, so this is a huge, huge bomb. As I was just kind of diving into to looking at this, it, it seemed like 1983 was you know, going to be the summer of a lot of sequels. And they were banking pretty hard that some kind of original concept like this, people were going to be tired of sequels and they were going to flock to an original concept of sword and sorcery meets Star Wars and a title that nobody would ever heard before. They were billing it as Excalibur meets Star Wars. That was the zeitgeist mashup they were hoping to score with. And I do think they kind of achieved that. Like, if that's their goal, Excalibur meets Star Wars, yeah, pretty close, I would say. (laughs) Yeah, I I think they struck the balance. I, I think they totally achieved their goal. I think that they found that weird hybrid between fantasy and sci-fi. And I remember that being a thing that really appealed to me as a kid when I saw it. I I wasn't thinking about it in those terms. I just thought it was neat that it was obviously there's, you know, armor and swords and medieval type weapons, but there are these stormtrooper looking guys and they're shooting lasers. And the bad guy's base is basically a a spaceship that looks like a, a fortress. And I just thought that was so cool. And, and, you know, it just seemed so impossible for the good guys to succeed. They were so outclassed, you know, so outgunned. Just to spend a minute on the poster, because just the, the what do you, the tagline on this poster, which I just wanted to bring up for a second, beyond our time, beyond our universe, there is a planet besieged by alien invaders where a young king must rescue his love from the clutches of the beast or risk the death of his world. Kroll, a world light years beyond your imagination. It's pretty awesome. That's how aggressive this movie was. Wow. And the poster is pretty fucking awesome. It is. Why don't you describe the poster for our listeners? So the poster features Colwyn and Lyssa, our our heroes of the story, uh, standing in the clutches of the beast, this giant clawed hand, and he's raising this weapon, which we will learn is the glaive, a five-pointed star that shoots green laser beams out of each point. And then behind him, uh, there is this demon with red cat eyes, and it looks like half his skull is peeled off, revealing like a tumorous brain. And he has these fangs and sharp teeth in which horses are coming out of his mouth with fire <laughs> emitting from their hooves. So there's a team of riders coming out of these horses, coming out of this demon's mouth, in which behind them is a sunset with two suns. I mean, this thing is awesome. I still don't know why this didn't find an audience. It just, it's not <laughs> A lot of time in typical trauma, it's like, well, obviously, you know, who is this movie for? This movie was for everyone. Clearly. That is the, the most awesome poster I've ever heard described. I think it's one of my favorite 80s one sheets. Well, and let's talk a little bit about the glaive. As we begin the movie, 
pretty much the first thing we see is the glaive. And the glaive is essentially like a big ninja star with like Freddy Krueger knives coming out of each (laughs) point of the star, which is going to be our signature weapon that our heroes are going to quest for in the early part of the movie. And it comes spinning across the star field. And then the word Krull sort of forms in the trail. Now, the glaive was the thing that I remembered most about Krull because I loved ninja weapons and stuff (laughs) like that. So if there was one thing that was going to intrigue me about Krull when I was 13, it was the glaive. Oh, hands down. I mean, this is basically... It's, a, it's like a stiletto knife, but you get five of them, and it shoots lasers, and it flies like a Frisbee. Yeah, it's a boomerang. Can you imagine the lawsuits if they had tried to make an actual <laughs> glaive and market it to children? I don't believe they did, but I can only imagine it ending in tears. I, I looked it up. There's somebody, I think, in the UK on eBay where he's selling replicas of them. Nice. I'm really really tempted and you can pop the bleeds in and out so wow yeah yeah the only thing about the glaive was even as a kid it just seemed like there's no possible way to to hold this thing and not have a whole bunch of cuts constantly (laughs) or lose a finger with this thing i read the novelization in preparation for this podcast and also for my own enjoyment it was wonderful I am so excited you did, and I would like you to feel free to interrupt at any time to add lore and explanation to our conversation here. Yes, please. Unfortunately, there won't be too many interruptions because it is very close to what I guess was the shooting script. It's the novelizations by oh. Alan Dean Foster, so it's beautifully written. It's a great read, and so I highly recommend it. But there, it's not like there's a lot of cutscenes or anything. There's a couple, and I'll, I'll for sure mention them. Is there any material left over from the original script, which was Dragons of Kroll? No, there there isn't. There aren't. And, there, and I think originally we were going to fight a dragon at the end, and it caused a lot of confusion at the time that maybe it had something to do with Dungeons and Dragons. It did not. Wow. Um, there, there was, I guess, even some versions of the script where Lissa, the princess, when she's captured by the beast, you know, he's, he tries to tempt her into the dark side, basically. And I think there is one version where she actually gives in for a bit. And it sounded like the actress who played Lissa was really happy about that. It kind of gave her more to do because I, I think one of the weak points of the story is, is her character and she's truly a damsel in distress. I may be asking you for some explanations of things if there is any in there. But... Oh man, I'm, I've been waiting since I was five years old for this kind of conversation. So I'm ready. <laughs> I'm here to help. I, you know, Troy, to answer your question, first of all, it was a a wonderful description of the one sheet. It was like very, very <laughs> clear. And I, I'm, I'm looking at it on the, the cover of the novelization and I was just getting excited here and you described it so perfectly. So in the <laughs> book, the glaive, they talk, a, there's, I think there's some throwaway lines about it in the movie, but um, it's, it's like an ancient weapon that was forged by the, the elder masters of crawl way back when. And the idea is like, you really have to be kind of the chosen one to wield it. And so to answer sure. your question about like why it doesn't call and chop off his fingers when he catches it, there's some kind of special bond between the right kind of user and the weapon, and you never have to really worry about that. And I think it kind of also taps into the special bond that Colin and Lissa have that they use to save themselves at, at the end of the movie, too. So it's a sword in the stone type of... Totally is. Arthurian type of weapon. Yeah, it, very much so. And my only complaint about Krull is that there's not more glaive in it 
you know, like there's, yes, it's that, that scene when I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but when Colin finds the glaive and reaches his hand into this pool of lava and pulls it out, that blew my mind as a kid. It was because I knew what lava was. I, you know, and to kill him, to burn off his hand and he pulls it out. And it's, <laughs> the music is soaring and it's so cool. And then he doesn't use it for like the next hour and 15 minutes. Nope. It is a bit of a letdown because it's pretty awesome when he discovers it. So awesome. Dude, I'd be whipping out that thing every five (laughs) minutes. Are you kidding? Like, you want me to crack that walnut for you? Here you go. (laughs) (laughs) So I had, I had one thing to add on to the, um, so the original script was dragons of Kroll. And I, in preparation for this podcast, listened to the incredibly dull director's commentary (laughs) on the DVD which I found for $16 used. (laughs) And it did mention something in there, which I couldn't find online, which is one of the reasons why they dropped the Dragons of Kroll title and just went with Kroll. Apparently, Dragon Slayer had just come out and bombed. And I didn't realize realize what a bomb Dragon Slayer was, but evidently it lost money. Huh. And... Apparently, they just kind of freaked the fuck out and they wanted to distance themselves as much as they could from not only dragons, but a little bit from sword and sorcery. So they dropped a lot of sorcery from the script and definitely dropped the dragons trying to to get as far as away as they could from Dragon Slayer. Yeah, Hollywood has a history of doing that. Remember a few years ago when a bunch of movies with Mars in them came out and they all bombed? Yeah. And then they started like taking Mars. They took Mars out of John Carter of Mars because they were like, no one wants to go to Mars. (laughs) And then The Martian happened and they were like, hmm, well, maybe people do want to go to Mars. (laughs) But I also heard that they took Dragon out of it like Richard sort of was intimating because they originally wanted a dragon to be the dark evil one or whatever he's called, and they couldn't make it work, so they just made a crappy costume (laughs) and called it the Beast instead. (laughs) Probably more of that being the actual answer. Yeah. And and that Beast, I have to say, also was a bit of a letdown. Let's talk a little bit about the setup here. So the beginning of the movie is narrated by Yanir, who is the Freddie Jones character, also the old man, as he is called. One complaint I have about Krull from a writing standpoint is we get way too many wizards. <laughs> There's like <Yes>. three <laughs> wizards in this friggin' movie. Like you only need one Obi-Wan Kenobi. And in this movie, we get three at least. And he's narrating, he's sort of setting up the mythology that Krull is this planet, and there's this prophecy that there's going to be this marriage, and there's going to be this child from the marriage that rules over the universe. But because Star Wars had made such an impression on cinema, you got to open your movie, no matter what it is, with some sort of giant thing floating through space, right? So we have this dark fortress model floating through space as we're getting this information. And while I was watching this, it it made me sort of regret that I hadn't seen Krull ever in the theater because I bet this would be pretty impressive on the big screen. I mean, obviously, it's just sort of aping the Star Destroyer opening from Star Wars, but it's pretty cool. And we should also talk a little bit about the James Horner score because we're getting these sort of blasting horns as fanfare and stuff. 
I think the Horner score here is pretty good. He will go on to sort of recycle this in a lot of different movies, but it does definitely, I think, strike the right tone, pun intended, for the movie. Yeah, 100%. The James Horner score is, uh, it, it, it does sound a lot like Star Trek II. Yes. But it kind of really gets you excited for this movie. And like you said, Sebastian, the, the miniatures in this movie look incredible. And to have the film open with this giant rock spaceship thing flying by you in space um looks amazing with this james horner score and apparently the um the art director came from all the james bond movie he did all the miniatures for the james bond movies oh cool and and started with thunderbirds no no way (laughs) so they they like really were into miniature sets in this movie i'll uh, tell you you know from my five-year-old recollection being in the theater this was amazing when you said seeing the glaive in the beginning and the title crawl, which I don't know what it means, but it sounds really cool. And then the James Horner score, I think that and the glaive are like the two co-stars of this movie, like the two best things about it. Yeah. And seeing that black fortress come across the screen and then it turns upright and lands on the actual planet of crawl. It was pretty exciting as a kid watching that. I actually never knew what crawl meant until like two days ago. <laughs> watching this as a kid, like you never pick up on what crawl actually was. I always thought it was like the monster in the poster or something, but you know, crawl is the planet. And I always sort of forget that. And every time I revisit crawl, which is often, I'm like, oh yeah, crawl <laughs> is the planet. You know, you mentioned about this intro with Freddie Jones and some of the writing as a kid, when I saw this, you know, at the age of 10, you just sort of like take everything in and whatever goes over your head, you don't care as long as there's a glaive in it and some laser beams and there's a prince and a princess, like you just kind of ride this wave yeah. and it's awesome. As an adult watching this, and I hadn't seen this in, I don't know, I think, actually, I think the last time I saw it was probably with, with you. Yes, we watched it together when I got the Blu-ray. A while ago. And so I watched it again. I don't know about you guys, but this felt like long COVID trying to understand <laughs> some of the exposition and the narration in the beginning of this movie. They throw so much shit at what should just be uh, a princess being captured and a prince trying to rescue a princess. Yes. I had to watch it at the beginning of this like three times to try to figure out what they were talking about, which none of it matters. The mistake they make is they try to explain why this marriage needs to happen. And it needs to happen because there needs to be this alliance of forces. But what I find confusing about this setup is, has the Dark Fortress showed up before? This was the exact question that I had. Do you want, do you want me to read to you uh, what Freddie Jones talks about? Sure. This is what how the film opens up. It's Freddie Jones, uh, or just the voice of the narrator saying, This it was given me to know that many worlds have been enslaved by the beast and his army, the slayers. Uh-huh. And this too was given me to know the beast will come to our world, the world of Kroll, and his black fortress will be seen in the land that the smoke of burning villages would darken the sky and the cries of the dying echo through the deserted valleys. But one thing I cannot know, whether the prophecy be true, that a girl of ancient name shall become queen 
that she shall choose a king and that together they shall rule our world and their son shall rule the galaxy. That is some poetry worthy of Proust. <laughs> That's the word salad that opens up this movie. Right, and it doesn't clarify anything. Well, I think here's where the novelization helps, because the, yes, the opening is a little different in the book. Like, you don't, there's no description of the Black Fortress going through space. It opens with a young, like, shepherd boy tending his flock, and everything's peaceful, and they're kind of describing how idyllic the planet Crawl is, and then a big shadow falls over him. And it's pretty horrible, like that the shepherd and the sheep all get crushed by the Black Fortress as it lands. Nice. So that's the opening of the book. In the movie, they go from the landing of the the uh, Black Fortress to the princess's kingdom, and there's she's talking with her father, and they're doing a lot of um, you know sort of exposition about the marriage and why these two kingdoms must unite, but they do this weird thing where they cut away from them and they're just showing like scenery and showing these horses riding over these fields while they're describing all this stuff. So it just makes it extra confusing. And I, I think part of the problem was the the actress in this who is beautiful and I think does a fine performance, they dubbed her voice entirely with a different actress. Yeah. And so they're kind of cutting away from her performance a lot and maybe to cover up the ADR not syncing up properly. But all you need to know from the novelization is that, um, there's this opening with the shepherd boy and the sheep getting crushed. And then you go with uh, Prince Colwyn and his dad, the king of their kingdom, and some soldiers. And they have been working their way across the planet of Kral to come to the, the princess's kingdom. And they've lost hundreds of soldiers along the way in battles with the Slayers. So the Slayers have been there for a while. And I think this is the first time that they've landed on Kral, but they have visited other worlds in the system, right. including the world of the Cyclopses. Hearing about a shepherd and his boy getting crushed by the fortress uh, alone was worth you reading the novelization. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> well, and I actually think that's a much better opening. I mean, I realize why they can't do that in a PG movie in 1983, th show a shepherd getting crushed with his son. But that would at least set things up in a more understandable way and establish what a threat it is. And then when we hear that Colvin and his men have been fighting these slayers for a while now, that would help. Because the way it is now, it's just like, we're going to show you the Black Fortress landing and here it is. And oh, it's a threat. There needs to be an alliance now to stop this threat. It's like, how do you even know it's a threat? How do you even know it's there? Yeah, you, you know. <laughs> really see you don't see the slayers kind of destroying anything before no. they get to the, the castle with the wedding ceremony and, and again this is where i think the novelization helps but it's it's kind the of this novelization sounds like it definitely yeah it, it, it's sort of this it's sort of like a, a double beat but in the book you need to have this arranged marriage between the two kingdoms because only by combining their two armies, that might be the only way they can fight off the Slayers and the Beast. Yeah, I got that. The other thing, and kind of one of the, not a problem I had with, with the movie, but just sort of an interesting thing to me about it is like in the movie, Colin and the Princess Lissa, they meet and then they're supposed to get married like an hour later. But they have such a love at first sight when they meet each other that they're automatically in love and then we're supposed to understand why Colin is going to like travel across the world of Pearl and put himself in certain death just to save her. And I think the book does a little bit of a better job with it just because there's more real estate to get into their relationship. And I think the movie 
glosses over really, really quickly. Yeah, in the movie, you feel like they already knew each other. Yeah. There is an exchange of dialogue between Lissa and her father, the king. And again, it is incomprehensible, and it immediately follows the opening narration with Freddie Jones. I could not understand if these Slayers had already been here, if Lissa and Colwyn had already known each other, why there's these two kingdoms. Like, none of this made sense to me, so I had to literally write it down word for word just to try to understand what was happening to a story that should just be a princess being captured. They're trying to do the work of what the novelization can do in prose, in dialogue, and it's clunky and awkward. And they're supposed to set up this idea that her father doesn't like this other king, which doesn't amount to anything at any point and doesn't matter and doesn't need to be there at all. (laughs) And yes, like you're saying, all we need to know, prince, princess, marriage, gets broken up by evil forces. Why don't we talk a little bit about our Luke Skywalker, Prince Colwyn. He is played by Ken Marshall, who is not an actor that I have a lot of familiarity with. I'm sure he's been in some stuff, but I only know him from Krull. He's obviously based on the Errol Flynn Robin Hood archetype. He's even got the like tight pants, which I think he looks very good in. Yeah, I want some. They're some of the sexiest pants in the 80s. These are like thin leather tights. But they have stripes on them. It's a very, very flattering silhouette. It's like something Rick James would wear. (laughs) Now, a confusing thing is the Princess Lissa is played by Lissette Anthony. So I don't know if they just took her name and used it or if it was a coincidence. (laughs) Later on... We're going to get another character named Lissa, who we find out she's named after, so it gets even more confusing. But as Richard said, she doesn't really amount to a whole lot in the story, unfortunately. And yeah, the actress was dubbed for whatever reason. We only get really one scene of their undying love together, and it doesn't necessarily set the screen on fire. But it, it sets the uh, the holy water font on fire in, in the chapel. <laughs> That's right. Yes, they have this bizarro ceremony. Yeah, yeah. And in my five-year-old mind, this was like, all weddings should be like this. And I really, <laughs> when I married my wife, Jen, I was trying to find a way to manufacture this effect, but it just, it's not, <laughs> you have to get insurance on wedding venues and any like pyrotechnics is very expensive. So we didn't do it. But um, yeah, the idea is that they, uh, the, the groom, Colin puts a, a torch, douses it in a basin of water, to show that they're their connection to each other. Lissa, the princess, puts her hand in the water when she pulls it out. There's flames dancing on it. Okay, I guess it's a little bit of a hokey effect now, but I thought it was cool at the time. And it does pay off later. It's one of the few instances of setup and payoff in this movie. Because there really aren't a lot. It feels like something they came up with after they came up with the ending. Like they were like, we need to have a reason why he can shoot fire out of his hand. And they were like, huh, let's make it so their wedding ceremony involves fire. But I agree with you. I think it's kind of neat. I like it. Troy, did you write down what this... What are their vows? (laughs) No, that's all I wrote down. You didn't write down their wedding vows? (laughs) 
let's talk a little bit about like the production design. That's one of the things about this movie that I think if you're a fan of sci-fi and fantasy, you'll sort of take away from it. This whole beginning is sort of taking place in this castle, which is very sort of like white marble stone. There are some pretty obvious backdrops that I noticed that on Blu-ray, you can kind of see the seams <laughs> where they're kind of like <laughs> painted onto the walls or whatever. So it's probably better to watch this in a lower resolution because you probably don't see as many defects and stuff like that. But I do really enjoy the sort of swashbuckling production design of this. I think across the board, the production design is, is awesome. You know, when they, when, where they shot this, it was in um, Pinewood Studios and there's a big swamp sequence. They built that in the big Bond soundstage. I think that's the, the biggest one in the world or it was at the time. Um, so I'm sure that's where a lot of the budget of this movie went to. But it, you know, it's kind of cool because the, the princess's castle, it's sort of very, angular, almost modern looking, which you don't really yeah. associate with fantasy stories. And then when you get to the Beast's Fortress, it's very kind of organic looking, almost kind of like an H.R. Guerre sort of uh, vibe to a lot of the sets in there. It's And then there's yeah. some other things that are very impressionistic, like a cell that she's in that looks like a giant eyeball. Really cool. Yeah, I love the sets in this movie. And apparently a lot of the budget did go to the sets because as the script kept changing, they had to keep changing those sets. So they would like build a set and then have to re-modify it for a different scene or recycle certain things. And so they were hemorrhaging money based on these massive sets, which were really impressive. Like I forgot how good this movie looks just based on some of these sound stages that they were in these environments with like the suns and the sky and stuff, which was all on sound stages. It's pretty incredible. Later on, they're going to be wandering through the forest for a lot of it. So they do kind of use some natural uh, settings too. And later on to good effect, but this castle sequence is all very clearly a stage. A lot of those forests were sound stages. Oh, like really? They built forests. And, yes. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about the Slayers attacking, because as Richard sort of mentioned before, I kind of find this a little baffling. The Slayers come in and they're attacking, and right away we notice that they've got like lasers, okay? So they've got these sort of like staffs that act as lasers, but can also be used against bladed weapons, which is cool. However... I would think that when you're dealing with lasers versus swords, lasers are going to win pretty handily and pretty right away. I mean, it's definitely fun to see these sort of sword fights they're having because, you know, when the swords clash with the staffs, we get these sort of visual effects of electric sparks and stuff. It's very cool, but the power dynamic here seems wildly out of whack. Yeah, honestly, even as an adult, I never thought about it as hard as you did. I just saw lasers and swords and thought it was cool. It's cool, but it's also, I just remember being a kid and being so scared by this because they, they do some intercutting during the wedding where they show the stormtroopers basically riding these horses to, to the, and you, you, know, you know they're going to the wedding and they're going to mess it up. And they you know, also show them kind of climbing, scaling up the sides of the walls. That's pretty cool, too. Sort of wire work looking climbing of walls. Yeah. I just don't know why they're riding the horses. Like, why? I'm sure it was a budget thing, but like, they just came from outer space on this giant spaceship. Don't they have, you know, hovercraft or alien horses? Whatever. It doesn't matter. 
But we have to mention that when these slayers are defeated, what happens when they die, question mark, I, I guess, is that their skull opens up and out comes what looks like a tumorous, bloody vegetable crawls out of that and then hides into the ground. Yeah, burrows underground. Richard, what does the novelization say? How do they, how do they die? It, it doesn't say anything. Just it, it actually kind of glides over that part a, a little bit, but it does say, you know, sort of in, in kind of a more uh, poetic way that some sort of dark presence slips out of the cracked shell of the Slayer's helmet and, and burrows underground. And that's well, in it. the movie, these this looks like a giant bloody tumor. It kind of reminded me of like the the Tingler. You know, the old Vincent yeah. Price thing. It's almost like a little crustacean, a little insectoid. It's really freaky. I would have loved to have seen something pay off with that later on. Yeah, nobody ever like grabs one or anything. No, they never do. And, and I guess we're meant to assume that it, they somehow find their way back to the beast in his fortress or something. But I, I think overall the um, the Slayers have a really cool look to them. They're a little asymmetrical. They, I mean, obviously they're, they're meant to be like stormtroopers, but... I think they're really cool looking and weapons are neat. You never get a full on view of one, so they they always seem to be sort of in shadow and stuff, but they definitely look imposing and scary. No, they definitely you were right that they have this uh HR Geiger look. Like they do almost look like the alien suit if it were armor. But let's talk a little bit about the confusing uh motivation of the beast here because the beast wants to kidnap Princess Lissa. Why? What is the reasoning here? I mean, does he want to marry her? Does he think she's cute? Is this going to somehow give him more control over Krull? It seems to me he can just take control of Krull and he doesn't need a princess. I mean, I get it that we're doing the sort of archetypal story here. The princess is captured and the whole time I'm wondering why does he want the princess? It's never explained to my satisfaction. Now, Richard, in the novelization, is there any sort of explanation as to the motivation? There is not uh, not the most satisfying either, but the idea is that the beast has a lot of power and he definitely has enough power to destroy the planet Krull, but he has designs on the whole universe. And in order for him to do that, he needs to level up in power. Basically that special bond that Colin and, and Lissa share that allows him to summon fire and all that, like he needs Lissa to form that bond with her but he can't take it from her. She has to give it willingly. That's one of the, the vows in the wedding that Troy transcribed and reads every night uh, before he goes to bed. <laughs> it's, it's that she like gives gives her fire willingly to, to her true love. Again, it's, it's kind of, you could shoot a lot of holes through that. I guess it holds together enough. Well, I am actually very grateful for that explanation that does actually help me understand it more. One thing I really noticed about the whole thing between Lissa and the Beast, and you sort of were talking about it earlier, that it really reminds me of what was later going to be done in Legend with the mm -hmm. Mia Sarah character and the darkness. I feel like it's done to better effect in Legend, but I feel like they're going for the same sort of thing here, where it's like, yeah, you have darkness trying to seduce light, and that's going to give it some sort of power over this world. But this movie does not set that up or explain it in any sort of way that I think is meaningful or makes sense. 
totally agree. And Lissa doesn't have that many more scenes in the novelization, but they do have a bit more punch to them because you're getting a greater sense of like how much willpower she's exerting to fight off this corruption. And, and the beast is really trying to like seduce her and win her over and, and she kind of displays her own strength. So it, it's a shame the movie couldn't get that in there. The beast is basically this, it, what looks like it could have been a kind of a cool monster suit, but it's shot through this like stretchy funhouse mirror, gauzy blurry lens to try to make it, ethereal or i don't know to maybe disguise that it was just a cheap suit yeah i think that's more of it and in, in the beginning we just get this weird shot of the beast where it's just kind of like pieces of his imagery mashed together and some weird psychedelia it's like a collage <laughs> yeah there's like an eye and the mouth and yeah yeah it's kind of like uh my parents' wedding photos there's like weird super imposed <laughs> like their heads next to their bodies <laughs> as they get married but you know more demonic I, like now I watch it and I think it's cool. It's almost like kind of a Cthulhu sort of thing where it is so impossibly evil that like our, our senses can't even fully perceive it. But for sure, the filmmakers are trying to cover up like the zippers and stuff on the suit. What happens after this is our narrator, the old man, a.k.a. Yinner, played by Freddie Jones, shows up at the castle. It's all been devastated. Colwyn's father was killed during the battle, so he's really sad about that. And he's basically sort of laying on these stairs and crying. And we get this tender moment where Yanir puts this sort of gooey salve on Colwyn's naked torso with his sort of hairy chest, (laughs) very lovingly applies this salve, which I enjoyed. And Colwyn's being a real baby here. He just wants to sit around and cry, but our Ben Kenobi-ish character convinces him that he needs to go on this quest to destroy the beast, and the only way he's going to be able to do that is with the glaive. And he presents to him some kind of medallion or something in this scene. It was his dad's, the king's, Colwyn's dad's. He was wearing it. So it was Colwyn's dad that had that medallion? Yeah, he's, it's uh, like the medallion of the king, and only the king or the Lord Chamberlain of Kroll can wear it, okay. which will come into play later on. Uh, but when Anir comes down from the mountains and goes to the castle that's been all these are blasted, no one's dead except for Colwyn, uh, he, he takes the, the medallion off of Colwyn's dad's corpse and then uh, gives it to Colwyn. So, and it's got like a that, like a, a glaive motif on it too. You kind of see that yeah. in the production design too. When they get married and the ceiling above them, there's a sculpture of a glaive. I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's reflected in the lawn. Yeah, and I mean, I took it as to be sort of like a royal crest or something. But yeah, it's one more thing to sort of be dealing with in this weird movie full of totems <laughs> and mythology. So we got to go on this quest for the glaive. The glaive is, for whatever reason... It is a relic of a former encounter with the beast, in which the beast was defeated by the glaive. And for some reason, it's just sitting around now. No offense, Troy. I'm going to push back on that one uh, a little bit. I think (laughs) Alan Dean Foster says you're wrong, so, uh, you know... (laughs) No, I, it, it, it honestly doesn't. If Alan Dean Foster says it, I believe it, because Alan Dean Foster was 
probably the greatest author of my youth. The alien novelization was a seminal literary work for me. So uh, tell me, I'm dying to know what is the glaive? You no, know, well, it just it doesn't say anything about a previous encounter with the beast. Just that you know, whatever ancient mystics were on planet crawl had created it long ago and it served its purpose in another war. So I guess it could be against the beast, but it doesn't specifically state that in the novelization. And I guess, spoilers for this almost 40-year-old movie, but the glaive can't stop the beast at the end of Crawl anyway. So I don't know how, right. you know, maybe it defeated the beast before and then he, he worked up some strategy and came back. But that's one of my great frustrations with, with Crawl, and it's nothing to do with the movie, but for as hokey as a lot of this stuff is, there's so many cool ideas and so many breadcrumb trails that are never followed up. And I wish this movie had been more of a success so we could have gotten more sequels or, you know, other books or other things set in that world because there's just a lot of cool things here. I want to know more about them. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the world here is cool. I think the mistake that Krull makes, and this is sort of speaking to the larger issues and the sort of why did it fail question, but I think this movie misunderstands what made Star Wars work. Mm -hmm. And what made Star Wars work, aside from the world building and everything, was that it just had a very clear cut story. And I mean, this took so much development from George Lucas. I mean, he famously wrote all these different versions of Star Wars, and it wasn't until he had sort of brought it to other people where they sort of helped him refine it and sort of get it down to what it needed to be. You know, I've read like the early drafts, and they are just nuts. And they're kind of like crawl. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they didn't boil this thing down to the essences that it needed to be. You know what I mean? Like, it's a tough thing to do. It's a tough thing to do when you have such a world-built world to know what you need to to get across for the story, what you can hold back for sequels. It's a real formula, and they just don't really get it right here. And I think that's kind of the problem. It's kind of an attempt at, like, an Arthurian, like, you know, the Glaive does have this sort of Arthurian thing, just like a lightsaber does, but... You know, the, there's these elements that are really misguided, like it has a history from a former, it used to be owned by somebody else in a, in a great battle that saved us all, and it can only be used by the chosen one. And all of this is kind of surrounding it, but never really explained. Yeah. And I also feel like they're trying to do kind of like a ring of power thing where it's been dropped into a lava pool in a mountain, you know, and so I think we're to sort of fill in the backstory that, oh, this other war ended with throwing the glaive into the volcano or something like the ring. But I will say, it's crazy when Colwyn goes up this friggin' mountain to get to this cave where the glaive is, because they are shooting this on the side of some crazy mountain and Poor Ken Marshall is like climbing up these rocks <laughs> in his like Colwyn tights and stuff. And like it looks dangerous. And I was reading on Wikipedia like they put him in danger to get these shots for sure. Yeah, some of that was a stuntman. But there was a couple of shots where he is like 20 feet above the ground. And they were saying like, you know, if you slip the wrong way, you could go actually all the way down the mountain. Well, it was worth it. <laughs> He pulls the glaive out of this lava, and so now we have the glaive. And Ynir, is that how I pronounce his name? 
Inier. Yeah, I think so. Is his name also the Seer, or did I just hear Inier? No, the Seer is the other wizard. One of the other wizards. All right. You're mixing up your wizards, dude. <laughs> Inier is the one who kind of, I'm sorry, this isn't PC, but kind of looks like a hobo. You know, like he's, yeah. <laughs> he's got these gloves with the fingers cut off and he's got sort of, yeah. it's not a bindle, but that's where he keeps all his salves and things. And he's just kind of, kind of grubby. You know, he doesn't have the same countenance as like an Obi-Wan Kenobi or the Emerald Seer later on. I just always remember him from the Elephant Man, Freddie Jones. And I feel like he's kind of reprising his role a little bit here. He'll also later be in Dune and Francesca Annis, who is his long lost love, is also in Dune. The Widow of the Web. Wait, is she Lady Jessica in Dune? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's right. Okay. And he's Thufar Hawat or whatever. So Colwyn gets the glaive and it's just sort of tossed off here. He's like, well, how do I use it? And (laughs) Yanir's like, oh, you'll know. It's like every little kid in the audience is like, no, like <laughs> use it right now. And we're not going to get it for like another hour. You imagine that's like, like seeing the lightsaber in the beginning of Star Wars. And then it doesn't come <laughs> into play until like the last two minutes of the, the movie. Or they don't even turn it on. They're like, what's this? <laughs> <laughs> don't touch it. You'll figure out how to use it. <laughs> One of those images that's always been seared into my brain is when he pulls the glaive out of the lava and it's covered in this like crust of, of you know rock and then it breaks yeah. off and the glaive is shining and it's is that like an anamorphic lens that gives it like that flare on all the metal or do you guys know? Uh, it's definitely a filter. It's a star filter. Oh. Yeah. It's a specific filter that was used a lot in the 70s and 80s, especially like with disco. They would shoot the disco lights with a star filter and you'd get that really pronounced star glare on it. I mean, it's super dated, but I, I love it. And that's just like the music is swelling and it's in slow-mo while the rock is falling. I love that. I, I definitely know exactly the shot you're talking about and always kind of loved that too when i saw that as a kid i was like wow it's just so shiny it harkens back to the 70s and early 80s but yeah it's cool and he's a a pretty well-known cinematographer that was peter shuzetsky i'm impressed you can pronounce that name because i saw that and i was like i'm not even gonna try to pronounce the cinematographer i think he shot uh dead ringers he's shot a lot of stuff he's he's a, a pretty famous dp Well, let's move on now to the comic relief of this film, and that is Ergo the Magnificent, who is portrayed by a British actor, David Batley, who I recognize from other things, but I can't pinpoint exactly what I've seen him in, probably Doctor Who episodes or whatever. He was in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He was Charlie Bucket's a-hole teacher. This is yet another wizard character in a sense because he can transfigure himself into different things he won't shut up about gooseberry pie which he keeps mentioning later on he'll see some gooseberries and he'll be really excited by that he's the sort of braggadocious character who comes in and announces himself as short in stature tall in power narrow of purpose and wide in vision and you know he's just a sort of character that thinks highly of himself but is really more of a goofball comedic character when he tries to use his spells he ends up just sort of transforming himself and it's done in this sort of visual effect that later they will do the same thing in willow 
and they will do it with computers. They do the same kind of thing, but to better effect because it's one of the earliest computer CGI effects. But it's funny because I do feel like this movie has kind of been strip mined for ideas and used in later fantasy films. He was never funny. Even as a kid, this was a pretty annoying character. He's always accidentally turning himself into some animal, but he can never get it right. Yeah. Yeah, but I think like they do some nice things with it. Like in the beginning, he's turning, he's trying to turn Colwyn into a goose, and he turns himself into a goose, right? And then later on, he turns into like a little piglet. And uh, the boy who they pick up in their party later on, Titch, he's uh, was kind of like the apprentice of the seer. And when the seer leaves the picture, he's sad, and he you know says only a puppy would make him feel better. And so Ergo turns himself into a puppy to cheer up the kid. And I think like that's yeah, it's kind of a nice moment. And then um, later on, Ergo turns himself into a tiger to defend the kid. Yeah. And that's kind of a cool moment too. So, you know, I, like it's a little hokey, but I think it ultimately gets there. And you do need some comic relief because people are getting crushed and stabbed and choked and skewered all throughout this movie. So uh, a little levity goes a long way. When I was a teenager, he probably would have annoyed me, but now I kind of like him just because he's such a Campbellian archetype of a character. It is a totally bizarre introduction to him because he sort of appears as a fireball. Yeah, that's and, right. And lands in a pool of water and Colwyn and, and Yuri, or Yuri, Yuri, <laughs> and Yuri, they just look over him. They're like, they just sort of wave at him and say, hi. Right. <laughs> and also the reason they're there by the, that little lake and you is putting another salve on Colwyn. It's like, <laughs> it's a lot in this movie. <laughs> and the burn is like almost all gone. I don't think he needs it. I, re- I just remember as a kid, just, I thought there was something I wasn't getting because this character suddenly appeared and everybody was just acting as if they knew him. But that's kind of how characters come into this movie. I mean, not as fireballs coming out of the sky, <laughs> but... You know, the Cyclops, we find out, has just been sort of like stalking them for no reason. He's just been sort of chilling out in the woods and just watching them (laughs) popping in with his magical trident to throw and kill slayers. So that's just sort of the modus operandi of this story is people just come in (laughs) whenever they're needed. A lot of lurkers on crawl. But the next companions we meet on our journey are the Band of Bandits that are led by the character of Torquil, who is played by another British character actor, Alan Armstrong, who I have seen in a bunch of things as well. Can't readily remember them off the top of my head, but he shows up even to this day. I think he shows up in stuff. He's their leader. He's going to be, I guess, sort of the Han Solo of this movie. Although, to be gracious, he's not the most handsome of actors. (laughs) So... I do feel like this guy was sort of set up to fail in that regard because he's not very dashing or anything. But he's a good actor and he does a good job. In the meantime, we've got Liam Neeson here in this crew. You would have thought maybe they would have given the role to him. I know Liam Neeson was nobody at this point. He had been an Excalibur. I'm sure that's why he got the job here. But he's this sort of side character who's in this band of thieves who's a polygamist. (laughs) I missed that. What? You didn't catch that? That's why he was in prison? No, I missed that. Well, I don't think that's why he's in prison, but like they talk about how he has wives in every town or whatever. Oh, that's when they they later, those are his wives that they run into later on. One of them. One of them, yeah. And Robbie Coltrane is in here too. That's right. That's the fat guy. (laughs) You got the polygamist, the fat guy, the funny guy, 
and we get like a young guy who's not technically a kid but he kind of is the kid but then we get another kid later this is another problem i have with this movie is they double down on a lot of archetypes here like they could have streamlined this we only need one kid he could have just been the seer's ward or whatever we don't need this other younger bandit agree you know obviously colin needs an army to go and storm the beast's dark fortress and uh i think it was a smart idea to have him be a bunch of bandits and i think yeah. that the dialogue when they interact and the way colin tries to get them to defend their planet even though the, these bandits feel like they've been hard done by their planet torkles an escape prisoner he still wears his manacles around them I thought all that was pretty deftly handled and, and it's just kind of a good way into beefing up Colin's ranks going into the, the bad guy's lair. But I agree, there's maybe three too many bandits and there's a lot of characters that are kind of doing the same thing. I do appreciate the fact that it, when they're talking about these manacles, Colwyn actually has the key that can open them because he's the king or whatever. And he's like, oh, here, you can have the key. And Torquil shows his sort of honor by saying, I'll open them at the end of the journey or whatever. It's very Robin Hood and his merry men, that kind of thing. So it works for me. I just feel like there's too many of these guys fulfilling the same sort of roles. I mean, I have the same problem with The Hobbit with all the dwarves. Like, there's too many dwarves in that friggin' story. Like, <laughs> get rid of some of these dwarves. Do you need Oin and Gloin? No, just pick one. Yeah. <laughs> in this case, some of these bandits are expendable, so you get to see a few of them wasted. That's true. There, there's some red shirts in there for sure. Yeah, they're fodder for the beast. Well, we already sort of mentioned the Cyclops Rel, but do we need to say anything more about him? I mean, Troy, I believe you learned some pretty interesting facts about his makeup in the DVD commentary. Oh, they were really proud of this makeup. It was one of the, was the things they were bragging about most, how it was radio controlled. Wow. Obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's this really tall actor with cyclops makeup on him so he can't see so you're covering up his eyes and putting one eye in the middle of his head which is this mechanical eye that's operated by people outside yeah and they were just going on and on about it in the commentary and this thing really just looks like the animatronic eye that you would see in a in a figure at disneyland but i did notice did you guys notice when you're when they meet this character and they go to shake his hand, like as he reaches out, he's missing because the actor can't see. I feel like he's got a little bit of sight because they put creases in on the side of his eyes. So I think he can see a little bit, but he's definitely struggling. Like they only kind of show him standing still a lot of times in a few scenes where he's running, but it's just as an isolated shot of him running. And there was a couple of other moments where he he's a bit clumsy. Basically, this actor's blind. I will say this, though, that for whatever reason, the image of the Cyclops in this movie is kind of what I think of when I think of Krull. Like, my mind immediately jumps to the Cyclops, even more so than the Glaive now. So for whatever reason, this Cyclops, as maybe as clunky as a special effect as he is, I do always think of the Cyclops when I think of Krull. And he's a cool character. He's He protects them many times with his giant spear, his trident. Well, and not only that, he has this cool backstory where the Cyclops race sold themselves out to the beast. And so they lost one eye 
but what they gained was the ability to see their own death. Yeah, they they sold one eye in exchange to see the future, but they were tricked, and the only future they can see is their own death. Is this expanded upon in the book at all, Richard? It's pretty much that, just that they there's like a whole planet of Cyclopses, or they weren't Cyclopses before, but that was one of the ones the Beast visited in the past, and yeah, there was some bargain, and he screwed him on it, and they never really explained how Rel, this Cyclops, got to crawl, but they the Cyclopses have like a real grudge against the Slayers and the Beast. It's cool. I mean, it would have been cool enough just to have a Cyclops, but then have that backstory and that precognition of your own death. That's a nice little flourish on it. I like that. He's definitely an interesting character, and they kind of keep mentioning how these creatures are melancholic because they know when they're going to die and how they're going to die. And then it also sort of adds an element that they're impervious when they're fighting because they know, well, they're not going to die in this battle. So they just kind of walk into battle confidently, knowing that this isn't their time. I am going to take issue with this bit of mythology later because the way it's actually executed in the film is <laughs> really clunky and terrible, but we'll wait to get there. The next quest that we go on is to meet with the Emerald Seer. And the reason why we need to do this is because, as we've sort of uh, implied, the fortress can teleport all over Crawl, and so you can't get a real bead on its location. I will say that the effect of the teleportation is rather disappointing. <laughs> it's, it's just a really simple fade away and then it refades in somewhere else. Like, come on, you can do a little <laughs> bit better than that, even in 1983. But yeah, that's why we need to go see the Emerald Seer, who is yet another wizard. But he's got a cool green robe and he's got an apprentice, Titch, who is like a little boy. But the fortress can only teleport like once a day. So if you figure out where it is one day, if you can get there, then you can get to the fortress. But then what at dawn or I don't know, at midnight or whatever, it will then teleport somewhere else. You got 24 hours once you know where it's going to be tomorrow. He has uh, like an emerald that he, he almost like a crystal ball that he looks into and it spins around real fast and creates like a hologram of the black fortress and just when it's about to reveal where it's gonna teleport to next one of the beast's claws reaches up and like crushes the hologram and all this wind blows through the seer's uh cave where he lives and you know for me as a kid when i saw it it, it freaked me out it was very scary and the seer himself is a really neat looking wizard very classic looking with a long flowing white beard and these emerald robes sort of wished that if they had to pick one wizard they would have picked him and had him throughout the movie because he's only in it for a couple of scenes. Well, and I'll say that at this point in the movie, I definitely start to kind of get hazy on yeah. details because we're really entering into this very episodic stretch where it's like quest, complete quest or fail quest. And each quest is rather vague. It definitely is a little hard to track as an adult because <laughs> you're kind of trying to make sense of what's going on and things don't totally always make sense. As Richard was just describing, the beast reaches you know, through time and space with his claw and crushes the seeing stone or whatever it is. So they never got to see where the fortress is going to go. He, Correct. He, Put the kibosh on that, right? Yes. Right. And at this point, the, the Emerald Seer is like, well, I guess we got to go to the swamp then, right? <laughs> yeah. He, 
he has like a like a safe house in the swamp and from there he can oraculate the location of the black fortress and not have to worry about reprisals from the the beast the beast can't hijack the vision in this swamp so that's plan b that is plan then there's going to be a plan c yeah they're basically at plan q by the time they get to the end of the movie (laughs) just like and the other thing is Let's say the seer was successful the first time and told them where the castle's going to be. They still have no way to get to that castle in the next 24 hours. So unless the castle right. is going to land like exactly where they are, they, they figure out a way later on in the movie. But they, you never get the sense that like you've got a bunch of wise men in this group and none of them really seem to have like a good handle on like this is what we're going to do. Yeah, they're not forward thinking planners <laughs> here. It's all just about like the next thing. Like, let's just go to the next place and then the solution will present itself. But before they can get to the next place, we're going to hit some quicksand. All right, we need to stop here and to sink a little bit into the mire of the quicksand because every adventure or fantasy movie from like 1950 to 1983, maybe this is even the pentultimate moment of quicksand scenes, but every sort of fantasy adventure movie needed a quicksand scene. You know, it's become sort of a meme now, like, oh, I thought that quicksand was going to be much more of a threat in my life. I mean, Sebastian, you grew up in the 80s. Didn't you think that at one point you could get caught in quicksand oh yeah no whenever i would go into the woods or whatever i'd be like hope i don't like hit some quicksand like (laughs) (laughs) this was something that we feared growing up when i worked at cinephile video there was a guy who would call and ask to put aside movies that featured quicksand scenes. <laughs> he was a quicksand fetishist. And he would like get off on seeing people sink into quicksand in movies. It was like his kink. And we would know this because he would ask if the movie had a quicksand scene. He'd be like, have you seen uh, Tarzan meets the, the, the leopard people or whatever? And it'd be like... Uh, no. He's like, there's supposed to be a quicksand scene in that. Do you know if there's a quicksand (laughs) scene? (laughs) He'd be all like breathy, like. (sighs) (laughs) Yeah. I was just talking with a friend of mine and was like growing up, what were the, you know, the two big fears that you took away from movies or three of them. Like one was if you travel and you do something wrong, you're going to be thrown in a Turkish prison. Sure, Two yeah. was that someday you're going to sink into quicksand. And three was that your car could explode if you smash it on a guardrail. Yeah, if your car gets in any sort of accident, it'll explode. What were those tapes like when he brought them back? I just imagine there being like lotion and sand on them. We definitely would get stuff back that would have like lube on it, which was really nasty. <laughs> but this quicksand scene is interminable it feels like you really feel like you're in narrative quicksand here because like they fall into the quicksand and like pretty much everybody in the party falls into the quicksand and then they pull most of the people out of the quicksand but then there's just this one dude who's been hardly a character at all in the movie who's singing in the quicksand but they've got to save this guy which is honorable i'm not saying they he's shouldn't. one of the bandits right right i'm not saying they shouldn't try to save him but he's got like a big like bag with him or something was something in the bag that was important I think it was like their food or supplies or something like that. It, with the bag they saved the bag and not yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> throw the bag first then we'll save you <laughs> 
<laughs> promise. Yeah, Colin's like, I've got my Trader Joe's like Indian food there. <laughs> we got to save that. But yeah, so they pull out the bag and then Colwyn is like in the quicksand. They're doing like a human chain to like pull out this dude. And Colwyn's reaching for him and reaching for him. Oh, he's straining and straining. And nope, the guy just disappears into the quicksand. So this feels like something we didn't really need in the movie. Would you guys agree? I disagree. Quicksand was such an important part of adventure movies. There's elements that of this movie that remind me of Flash Gordon, in which we also sure. had like a, a mud mire scene. And I felt like this is integral to these types of movies. It's uh, the quicksand is the way that they can hide the body of the seer also when he's replaced right. by a changeling, which I think is kind of a cool reveal when that happens. Uh, but yeah, it, it does go on long. And it's a shame that the the bandit that dies is one like you have, it's like having zero screen time up to that moment. You know, if it was right. like the young kid bandit who made a little bit of a statement early on and they lost him, it you know, might be a little more impactful. I also have to say this is one of my favorite sets and I know it's just like this dead wet area, but it's it's really cool. There's lots of fog. It's definitely in a sound stage and you have these two suns low to the horizon. Yeah. I and mean, it's got this amber hue to it. It's a very cool atmosphere. I think this is the one they built in the Bond sound stage and they there's a lot of sequences in it there's the quicksand and then there's an ambush so the, the slayers come out of the water i think that's all around this the same set too and i always kind of loved sets like this that are trying to be outdoors but it's obviously in a sound stage uh, as a kid i just remember thinking how dreamlike things like that looked and i couldn't quite figure out how they were done before i knew that, you know, these, these things are shot on, on sets. It kind of has like an operatic feel to it. Yeah. You know, and I really loved that stuff. It kind of got me fascinated into special effects when I learned like, oh, you know, these things are built on giant stages. Like that, that film, The Company of Wolves was like that. It was just like, what, what is going on in this world? I know you're not a fan of Sleepy Hollow, the Tim Burton movie, but that's something I always really liked about that movie. Oh no, but I love the way it, I love the way it looks for that exact reason. And, and you know, that that was a, a style choice they did yeah. directly as a, you know, homage to this type of, of filming. It grew out of necessity originally because they didn't have cameras that could shoot outside, but it created such an aesthetic. And definitely like in the world of horror, which I'm a huge horror fan, like Hammer Films always looked like this. Yes. I feel like the green screen era has sort of wrecked this. Like we don't really see much of this anymore because now yeah. you can just build a little set and then put green screen behind it and put whatever atmosphere or whatever in there. I feel like we've lost the art of this in a way. Yeah. It's an uncanny environment that you can't get without just building everything from the ground up and filling it with smoke. I agree. And I think the style now with all the green screen stuff is to make everything hyper-realistic. And so you lose yeah. some of that uncanny valley, not even uncanny valley, but there's something kind of impressionistic about these crawl sets, like the trees that are in the swamp. They don't, they look like trees, but they're not like any trees I've ever seen before. It just, all those little details add up and give you that, that feeling that I think you were describing, Troy. Yeah. It's, it's one of my favorite things about this movie is because there's so many of these environments and they're so meticulous. Like these, these on top of the miniatures just look great. It's one of the big payoffs in this film for me. 
So after they're in the swamp, what happens is, as Richard mentioned, the Slayers pop out of the swamp and start killing everybody. Colin does not use the glaive, <laughs> doesn't even cross his mind. Uh, and while that's going on, the Emerald Seer, who's blind, uh, he's kind of standing off to the side. And another seer looks just like him, comes out of the background and chokes him to death, as with all family films. And then uh, the, the battle is done. The, the slayers have been defeated. Those weird bug things leave their helmets and dig underground. And the seer says, okay, that base of mine that we're looking for, it's just, just down here. I'll leave the one person who seeks the knowledge. So all that is a ruse to put his hand on Colin. Colin's going to lead him to the base. And then uh, while that's all going on, the quicksand shifts and Rel, the Cyclops, he sees the one bandit who drowned in the quicksand. And then he sees the emerald robes of the real seer. And so he knows there's like a doppelganger. And so uh, as they get closer to the seer's base there in the swamp, the changeling reveals itself. His fingernails grow out real long and he starts to choke Colwyn. And Rel, the Cyclops, this is one of the scenes where he's running, which I don't know how they did if you couldn't see, but they, there must have just been the state chant in the background saying, like, <laughs> all right, stop, stop now, you know, before he runs into the wall. <laughs> but he has this uh, pretty sweet-looking trident, and he throws it, and it stabs the changeling seer in the back before he can kill Colwyn. And his face all bugs out and gets covered up with all these black tumors, and then he, too, turns into one of those things that slithers underground. This one in particular looks kind of like a roasted marshmallow melting face. All of those things that you just described, great use of the quicksand. Yeah. <laughs> the slayers coming out of the quicksand, the seer falling into the quicksand. We got a lot of quicksand use out of this, which I appreciate. They got their money's worth out of that set. The fake seer also had these black eyes. Yeah. They must have been giant contacts that they put in, which is a really creepy effect. And I know that that haunted me as a kid. And so it kind of gives me the creeps right now. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that's been played many times at this point. But back then, you didn't see too many characters with black eyes. So that would have been disturbing as a kid. A kinder trauma, as uh, Jen would say. The next trial they face is the trial of Neeson's wives, as it's famously known. <laughs> they basically stop outside this village where one of Liam Neeson's wives happens to live. And so he's like, hey, just have my wife come and cook food for everybody. So they have themselves a little party and during the duration of this party somehow the beast manages to gain control of one of the other women that is at this party not one of Liam Neeson's wives there's only one wife in this village and she tries to seduce Colwyn and while she's doing this like the beast is showing Lissa this on his like magic TV or whatever. And he's like, see, he's going to cheat on you. He's going to cheat on you. And of course, noble Colwyn does not and exposes her for the monster that she is. Is there any more in the book about this, uh, Richard? Yeah. Uh, her name is Vela and she was, uh, Liam Neeson's wife found her. She kind of wandered into the village one day all beat up and her backstory is that Vela came from a village that was raided and destroyed by the slayers and she was the only survivor uh -huh. and she's another one of these changeling shapeshifters of the beasts and I guess he's kind of playing the long game 
planted her in the village weeks ago, just in case, <laughs> in case of emergency, in case a, a, a young king with a glaive comes through here, he's going to spring that trap. It's not that um, Coleman kills her, like she's she's been sent there to kill him, but in her brief interaction with Coleman, she's fallen in love with him too. Uh-huh. This guy's really knows how to work on the ladies. Like he gets the princess in one conversation, now Vela's totally in him, and she falls in love with him that she sort of counteracts her, her programming and winds up destroying herself. Troy, are you now clear on what's going on here with Liam Neeson and his wives? Yeah, totally okay. clear. <laughs> Oh, this is also the one of the few instances of a cutscene that's in the in the novelization. Oh, nice! You're not going to like it. All it is is um, Rel the Cyclops and Titch the boy. For whatever reason, they want to make Ergo the Magnificent happy, so they make him a giant gooseberry trifle, <laughs> and they bring it to him and they surprise him, and it's like a gooseberry pie that's like, is oh, that was his wish. Because the boy said his wish was he wanted a puppy to cheer him up. Yep. And Ergo said, that's a stupid wish. And they asked uh, Ergo, what do you want? And he said, uh, you know, gooseberry, whatever. And Rel the Cyclops, his wish was for ignorance, which I thought was kind of an interesting little little beat there. But yeah. they go and they bake him a big pie and he eats the pie mostly himself. And all the other people that are there have gooseberry pie too. I'm glad Ergo the Magnificent gets his gooseberry pie, at least in the novel. I'll rest easier tonight knowing that. And also while all this happens, that's when Anir goes to visit the Widow of the West. Now this is kind of, I would say, one of the show-stopping sequences of Crawl. Would you guys agree? Definitely. There's kind of no reason for it, but it's it's one of the coolest scenes in the movie, and it's one that I always remember. Like most of the things in this movie, like it really doesn't make any sense, but they took their time to try to have this whole mythos behind him and his widow. Well, first of all, she's not a widow because they were together and he's still alive. Okay. So she's not a widow. What she is is a child killer because (laughs) we're going to learn that they had a son and because I don't know, he took off and left her or whatever. She was so pissed at him that she killed her own son or she like fed it to the spider that lives in the cave or something. I'm not completely sure in the details. Richard, can you fill us in? It doesn't make sense the novelization either. There is a little <laughs> extra context though, where there was a romance between Anir and Lissa, and at least in the book, it sort of hints that maybe there was a prophecy around them too, just like there is around Colin and his Lissa. Right. And that's why Anir is so knowledgeable about it, knows what he needs to get. So it's kind of an interesting thing that they don't fully pay off, but this idea that that they were sort of these star-crossed lovers too. But for whatever reason, Anir didn't want to stay with the beautiful widow of the web or the divorcee of the web or whatever she is. <laughs> like, he's like, I'm just going to go live in the mountains by myself. Uh-huh. And so, you know, she, she did the next logical thing was to, to feed their infant son to the spider. But in, in Anir's defense, he did not know she was pregnant when he when he abandoned oh, her. Well, that makes it better. <laughs> and even now, when he, he goes back, he just wants the location of the the fortress and he's kind of like got one foot out the door when he's asking for it you know like it's it's not like a really warm reunion she tells him this whole story about how she like murdered their child and he's like okay you know (laughs) this is what i'm talking about with this film is as a kid 
I watch this scene when I'm 10 years old and I see this dude crossing a giant spider web and this glass spider chasing him. And there's this weird old lady inside a cocoon and she's got like an hourglass filled with purple dust. And you guys are talking about how they used to be lovers and that she killed their child. And now that he has to go live on a mountain. So there's the lens of watching this movie as a kid and it's fucking cool. And you guys are trying to explain what's really going on. And I don't want to have any part of it. The spider is a metaphor, Troy. In a sense, there's, there's a spider in all of us. The spider's going to eat this guy ear unless he gets to the cocoon where the old lady is, who I think is a witch when I'm 10 years old. I don't know that she had a kid with him. Right. She's just like a weird witch lady inside of spider cocoon. To be clear, that would be the way I would have processed it, too. If I was watching it at 10 years old, I wouldn't have paid any attention to any of this nonsense they're talking about once they get to the center of the web. <laughs> but, you know, as a middle aged man, I'm like, what the hell is going on in this this cave? It's the same problem I had with the beginning of the movie. The beginning of the movie, there's castles. There's a giant spaceship thing that lands in the desert. There's laser beams and i'm like this is cool as an adult i'm like wait so there's two families and they're not getting along and there has to be a marriage and i'm struggling with this thanks for the wake-up call because you're right and i do remember being a kid and seeing this in the theater and being terrified because this there's this yeah, enormous this seems cool crystal spider and it can sense the vibrations on the web as in ears trying to get to the, the widow in the middle of it and it's, I think, really good stop-motion animation. For sure. It's some awesome stop-motion animation. It's a transparent spider, so, like, where did they hide the armature and all that? It's really well done. I just think we should move move on forward with this scene and talk about what we're actually seeing, not what has been written in the screenplay. <laughs> okay. No, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> because the way you get out of this spider web trap, once you've forgiven the widow and she turns into beautiful Francesca Annis, who will later be in Dune as Jessica, once you've forgiven her for murdering your son and feeding him to the spider, she's going to hand you some of the sand from this hourglass. She breaks the hourglass. And I don't know, does that mean that she dies because she's broken the hourglass? And, yeah, in the novelization, she dies. In the novelization. Sebastian, what's your answer? I would say yes, because she turns back into an old lady at this point. Does she die? According to Richard, yes. All right. Ten-year-old me says she definitely dies when she breaks the uh, hourglass. Then we're all in agreement. The three okay. of us and Alan <laughs> Dean Foster. <laughs> we can all agree on this. But what I'm struggling with here, you can hold on to some sand in your hand and you can climb back across the web, right, with sand in your hand that's kind of dribbling out of your hand, which means that if you lose all the sand, you're going to die, right? Yeah. The spider can get you if you don't have any sand in your hand. That's awkward because how the hell is Freddie Jones getting back across this web with only one hand and like sand in the other hand that he's trying not to drop, right? That's the quest. That seems difficult. That's hard to do. It's like in The Golden Child when you can't spill a drop of water in that glass. Yes. On those poles. Okay, so fine. I'm fine with that. He gets out of the spider's web. Does he kill the spider or does the spider just give up spider stops and for some reason magically can't go out of the cave but freddie jones still has sand now here's the part that even as 10 year old me is struggling with 
Freddie Jones comes back to the villagers where Liam Neeson's wives are, and he says, I know the location of the fortress. And, and he tells them the location, and then he, like, falls down and dies. I but he know. still has some sand in his hand. Why does he die? Like, shouldn't it just get him out of the the cave? Like, once you're yes. out of the cave, you're fine. And he just dies because Obi-Wan Kenobi died at this point <laughs> in Star Wars, probably to the minute. If you look at the minutes, like, that's when Obi-Wan Kenobi dies. They just need this character to die. So instead of, like, dying right. in a way where he's, like, killed by by another evil character. He just dies because the sand in his hand runs out. And 10-year-old me is watching this and going, that's bullshit. You can just put the sand in your pocket or something, <laughs> and maybe you have to carry that the rest of your life. He has all these pouches and, you know, his bindle and all. Just put the he sand just in there. He dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the way he shouts. The Iron Desert, you know, the Black Fortress will be the Iron Desert. And then just belly flops off a rock. It's a little clear in the novelization and, and the widow of the web does say that, you know, I can only turn my hourglass once per customer, basically. So when Anir is going to visit her and the spider comes after him, she turns the hourglass so that he can make it to her, her layer in the center of the web. She can't do that trick again. So then she smashes the hourglass and it represents not just her life, but his also. How does that add up? It doesn't. I don't know. I think it's, again, going back to this idea of, like, the prophecy and the, a man and woman in love, and they share, like, a power and a life together. And that's represented for Colin and Lissa with this flame wedding ring exchange kind of thing. And for whatever reason, for Anir and his Lissa, it was the sand and the hourglass. I'm doing a lot of work here, guys. I don't yeah. know. Let's, let's, let's move on. None of that explains why Freddie Jones dies, except I think what you said, Sebastian, is like, that's just the part in the movie where that wizard is supposed to die. I mean, I get it. She's given him the sand to escape the web, but he's going to have to sacrifice his life to do this or whatever. But yeah, the movie doesn't make it clear. And so that when he dies, when he's back at the camp, it's just like, huh? Why did he die? He just dies? Well, no offense to Freddie Jones, but he was never my favorite character way you know like no. you've got cyclopses and this wizard with the green robes and stuff like that like even colwyn's like all right well let, let's bury him real quick and let's get going to the iron desert next up they're gonna need to get some transportation to get to the fortress which is 1000 leagues away which is pretty far because leagues are almost a mile and that's that's far in order to do that they're gonna need to capture some fire mares so we get this scene where they're sort of rounding up these fire mares in like a valley or whatever and they're going to ride them to the fortress because fire mares can ride on fire and they can get there really quick they're magical horses rel the cyclops is like well I can't go with you guys. I got to stay here because this is my time to die. And like the kid is like, yep, he can't come with us now. He's got to die. So the Cyclops is just going to die here for whatever reason. We're not even going to see his death. Okay, fine, I guess. And they do. And they get on the fire mares and leave him and say goodbye. They say goodbye to him and ride off in the, <laughs> the fire mares. So we get this whole 
kind of cool sequence where we're watching all these horses ride on the fire over the the land of Krull. I mean, you know, it's cheesy by today's standards. It's just right. a like backdrop green screen or whatever. But still, for 80s standards, it's pretty fun. We get lots of shots of the heroes riding their horses, and it's cool. And then they get to the fortress, and then friggin' the Cyclops just shows up on his own fire mare. And then he's just like a little bit late. Like he had to go get get something to eat right. on his way. Yeah, like what did he have to stop off at, at fucking like McDonald's? Like why did he? <laughs> and nobody says like, I thought you were supposed to die. Nobody brings that up or addresses it. And this is the very next scene. Yeah, Richard, we're going to need some explanation here. What does the novelization say? Point of order, uh, the Cyclopses, their ability to see their own death, if they in any way try to violate that or change it, they experience an even more painful end. Okay. It would have been helpful to know how Rel was going to die in that valley where they got the horses, you know? That would have been helpful, yeah. And if it was like, he's just going to die of old age or you know he's going to have an aneurysm or something like that but instead he gets on his own fire mare actually the movie does a better job than the novelization of explaining that because in the novelization he just shows up at the black fortress and helps them all out at least in the movie you see him riding the fire mare if that had happened in the movie i would have been furious if he just showed up because then it would be like he just walks up the mountain yeah Like Okay, so basically that would have been helpful to know that the Cyclops chose a more painful death to go help out his comrades. Because what it looks like in the movie is just, just that he said he was going to die and he lied to them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that just showed up. And he's like, maybe I got that. Maybe I, or maybe I just made a mistake. And uh, actually, this is my time to die. Well, and he does end up dying more painfully because... They get into the fortress, and then the walls start closing in, and the Cyclops basically acts as like a buffer holding up the wall or whatever, and he ends up getting crushed horribly. So, yeah, that makes sense that he chose nobly to die a more painful death. There's a really throwaway line that Titch the Boy says when they're saying goodbye to him, but it's like you it doesn't register at all. It's not like delivering a close-up or anything. It's still throwaway. And that moment of Rel getting crushed under that that wall and that fortress, such nightmare fuel for young Ricky, who was horrible. Because <laughs> I love that character. You know, there's something he was like very noble and sympathetic and cool looking. And, you know, I just assumed he would survive kind of like the way Chewbacca does, you know, and um, Krull is pretty merciless with that. It's one of the things I, I like about Krull, though, is that it is pretty grim. It's merciless. Yeah. It's a kid's movie, but you're definitely drowning old men in quicksand, and shit, so it's great. So we're at our big fortress climax here. A lot of stuff is going on, a lot of moving parts, as many climaxes have. Robbie Coltrane dies. He gets shot or whatever by some lasers, and Liam Neeson dies rather unceremoniously, even though he's been sort of a notable side character, or maybe it's just because it's Liam Neeson. Speaking of moving parts, there is one scene where, for no reason or whatever, the, the floor like opens up underneath where they're trying to get to. Yeah. And they fall down a crack or something. Apparently, that was one set piece that almost did crush the lead actor. Oh, (laughs) I read that. Like the hydraulics were closing in on him and he couldn't get out. I wondered that as I was watching it. It was like, ooh, that 
looks like that could kill people. She's really squirming to get out of the way of that yeah. thing. climbing up this rope. <laughs> In the book, Liam Neeson's character, Keegan, he has kind of a funny send-off. Like, he's telling Torkel, you know, as he's dying, tell Marith she was my favorite, and then tell this other wife she was my favorite, and then he's about to say, you know, go throw them, and then he croaks. So it's kind of, kind of a cute moment. It may be a little too funny for, like, a pretty serious stretch in the movie. That would have been funny. I would have enjoyed that. Yeah, because he only mentions the one wife that we've seen. But yeah, the, the deal is that they figured out where the princess is. She's in this sort of weird, sort of biological looking chamber. And we finally get the glaive here. Uh, Colwyn's using the glaive to sort of cut through this barrier. And he's also been like throwing it at, at some of the uh, slayers at this point. Finally, we're getting yeah. some glaive action. <laughs> Torquil and the kid fall into this like Indiana Jones pit that these spikes are coming out of and we keep getting these shots all throughout the climax where they're like oh, and the spikes are almost like going into their necks but then they'll stop for some reason but then they'll start again and they're like oh it's very uh Indiana Jones the spikes skewer one of the one of the bandits that's right and that was pretty freaky for me as a kid too and in the i think if you watch the movie again and the book does this too like basically whenever colin is fighting the beast and the beast is distracted that's what's halting the progress of the spikes gotcha yeah i i knew there was a reason i just couldn't remember what the reason is i do sort of lose all sense of geography here too like this whole ending isn't particularly well put together well the fortress is supposed to not really have a geography it's supposed to be like this you know organic like his insides like your inside of his actual body almost it looks like that too like the the hallways all sort of have this sort of organic cave or like innards type of look but you're right for structuring an adventure scene it doesn't quite work to just have no idea where anybody is right it ain't spielberg like i'm not like <laughs> oh i'm following everything perfectly right. here but you know we end up with our showdown uh with the beast colwyn and the princess are reunited and now we're getting some pretty good looks at the beast and you know like as we've implied the effects are pretty rough and colwyn like keeps throwing the glaive at the beast so, you know, we're thinking that this is going to be the thing that is going to kill the beast because that's what the old man was telling him. But it turns out it doesn't kill the beast. It just sort of sticks in him. And Colin sort of tries to get the glaive back, summoning it back like the force or whatever. But the beast grabs hold of the glaive and Colwyn can't get it back. And that's when him and Lyssa have to redo their marriage vows, which causes the fire to return. That was her suddenly just thinking of that. She's like, wait a minute. We still haven't finished our, our ceremony. She tells Colwyn the power's in you. It, it's not the glaive, the power's in you, which I don't know how she knows that. She's just a very supportive wife. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> There's a little more to it in the novelization, but it's it's the broad strokes are all the same. The glaive deflects most of the beast's energy blasts or whatever, and then it gets embedded in his chest. And then they're like, Colin's like, I don't have any way to fight this thing. And then it is Lissa's idea that, you know, we have this power together. Right. So I think it's a little, it's definitely clearer in the book, but I remember as a kid thinking that was really cool. And even now I think it's really neat that this reunited couple, their love for each other is so strong that it can conquer this 
really gross entity. Ten-year-old me vows blah, 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 blah. Suddenly, Colwyn has fire flame shooter hands. <laughs> also a valid interpretation. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I got it. You know, it's the power of love kind of thing. And now he's got this magical power that he can shoot out of his hands. But I also feel like they're trying to give Lyssa a role in defeating the beast. So it sort of serves that purpose. It's goofy and cheesy, but I'm fine with it. And like you were saying earlier, Richard, it's it's one of maybe one or two setups in the movie that actually has a payoff nothing else in this movie does. Yeah, it's just a bunch of stuff that happens. <laughs> so they defeat the beast, and now they're all outside of the uh, fortress. The fortress, like, explodes or something, right? It's got to, right? It, it breaks apart, and it floats up back into space. It's kind of cool. And they've, they've reunited. They've gotten Torquil and the surviving bandits and Urgo and Titch. They're all alive, and they all get out together. At this point, Colwyn gives uh, Torkel that medallion you were talking about, Troy. And Torkel's like, well, this can only be worn by the king or the Lord Marshal. And Colwyn's like, that's right. So we know that Torquil is going to be his Lord Marshal. And as they all go walking off down this idyllic field, the voice of the prophet old man returns saying that one day their son will rule the galaxy in the sequel that we will never get. What if they had a girl? Feed her to the spider. That's what you gotta do. Try again. All right, guys. Well, it's time for that question that you all love to answer, and that is, why did this fail? Troy, why do you think this failed? You know, it's it's not any more ridiculous or inappropriate for kids at that age for, for any other kind of 80s movie. But I think the big gamble was, as they said in the, the commentary on this, was original property. All the other movies were sequels. You had Return of the Jedi coming out. You had, they mentioned like Psycho 2, and I think there was Friday the 13th Part 3. And this was like when sequels were starting to be the big thing. And uh, Strange Sword and Sorcery movie that takes place on another planet in which nothing is explained was too far off base from Star Wars, I think, when people just wanted more Star Wars. Richard, why do you think this failed? Sebastian, this is a question that has haunted me for 38 years. <laughs> I've, I've put a lot of thought into it. Um, I, honestly, I think you said it best earlier when you said that they kind of learned the wrong lessons from Star Wars. Star Wars is a fantasy story, but it's told as a sci-fi movie, yeah. right? And it, it's got sort of all the, the touchstones of the, the Campbellian you know, myth structure. And so there's kind of like a real purity to that, whereas Crawl is this weird mishmash of fantasy and sci-fi, and it doesn't have like a super gettable story. I mean, it, it has the basic one, a prince has to save the princess from the evil beast, but there's not much more to the structure than that. And so it feels really meandering. I don't know that audiences then would have picked up on that or that would have been the issue. I just think it's like ultimately a very confusing movie. Like Crawl is the name of the planet and and everyone thinks that it's the name of the bad guy or the main guy. This was the text I got from my dad. I, I told my parents that we were going to be recording this podcast. And then my mom texted me and said, your dad remembers Crawl throwing his weapon into the eye of the Cyclops and it killed the Cyclops. I'm like, oh. <laughs> 
don't even know where to begin with this one, guys. <laughs> so they got all the elements right, but totally wrong. And I just think like they named it Crawl after the planet, whereas like Star Wars at least tells you what the plot is, or Lord of the Rings is like a character and it tells you the plot where it's just it's just a confusing movie. I think your dad's text summed up why this movie failed. <laughs> That's it right there. <laughs> abject confusion about the plot. All that said, what I love about this movie is that you could never make this today. Like a big budget movie, not based on pre-existing IP. It's like a huge swing and it was a miss, but I really appreciate the effort. And I know like on a lot of the other episodes you guys have done, specifically thinking of the Chronicles of Riddick one, that was another one that I guess was technically a sequel of Pitch Black, but it was kind of this whole new mythology. Yeah. And I just really appreciate the effort. And it, when are they going to make a movie like this again that's not based off of something else? I say that as a huge Marvel fan. I think Jupiter Ascending is the last one of these type of things that we'll probably ever go. see. And I totally agree with you. I really appreciate this movie for that reason. I love that it's this crazy swing and this original idea. I mean, it's coming from a very probably cynical place of let's try to make the next Star Wars. But at the same time, I appreciate what it's doing. I love the production design and everything like that. It's a movie that I revisit to get that sort of fun 80s nostalgia of this era of films, of fantasy films in particular. You know, We're going to see this kind of thing be done again and again and again in the 80s with, like I mentioned, Legend and Willow and, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Movies that I kind of enjoy watching for the same reasons I enjoy this movie. But I think what it really comes down to is that other than the things you guys mentioned about the story being confusing and all of the confusing elements, is that nobody figured out how to crack that Star Wars thing. Like they tried and they tried and they tried and they tried and they just couldn't do it. And it's because Star Wars, I think at its heart, was a very simple story that, like you said, was sort of dressed in this sort of sci-fi clothing and this sort of used future world. But the actual like story of Star Wars is super simple. And another thing that I think this movie suffers from is the fact that Colwyn as a character is sort of bland and doesn't really have an arc. Like, what is his arc <laughs> in the movie? He starts off as this prince and he learns to, what, go on a quest and then that love is the answer or something? He doesn't really have any sort of relatable arc. And, like, he doesn't even seem to change much as the movie goes on. Like, everything that happens should be, like, a new layer of his like learning and his personality and like none of that happens it's just one thing to one thing to one thing to one thing like he doesn't seem to learn or grow as the story goes on and i think that people could relate to luke skywalker because he was this farm kid who wanted adventure and he gets more than he's bargained for but then he learns he's connected to this power and the galaxy and then by the end he learns to let go of all of the things he knows and to trust this power and to defeat the enemy this movie is like there's none of that it's just like go get the glaive go see the seer go to the swamp, go do this. There's no character. You you summarized it earlier, but this film is kind of a cautionary tale because Star Wars actually almost 
was this. Right. Right. It took a lot of help uh, with the script of Star Wars to boil it down to get to that place where Star Wars, like you were saying, started off where it was all world building. None of the characters made any sense. It was a lot of these quests and journeys and creatures. And and it, it was so much like Kroll in a lot of ways that I think that sort of answers your question too, is, you know, why did this movie fail? Is that it was it was sort of the first draft of Star Wars. Yeah, I think you can't just jump into this kind of thing. And I think people misunderstood that by looking at the success of Star Wars, I think they felt like it just came out of nowhere and like, oh, this is how you do this. You can just plug yeah. in this sort of idea. And it's like, no, Star Wars arrived at the place that it did through years of refinement and changing things and really working on it. And these things are hard to do. It's hard to, first of all, build a believable world, a believable fantasy world. And then once you've built that fantasy world, you've got to craft the story that's going to work best in it. And that's hard because you've created this world with all these possibilities. Like, what is the best story to tell in this world? And that's very, very difficult. I think it's just harder than people think it is. Those are all great points especially about Colin not having an arc, you know, and the, to, to bring up the novelization again. And I feel like this is Alan Dean Foster retroactively trying to give Colin an arc in the book. Like he starts out a lot more impetuous and more like a hothead in the earlier chapters. And by the end, when Anir dies, I think the line may be in the movie too, but he, he says, Colin says to Anir, like, you taught me what power really is. And so by the time he gets to the Black Fortress, he's more patient he's waited to use the glaive then but it's it's pretty flimsy no but this this movie does have a, a lifespan because colwyn has two strong things he has a glaive and he has those rick james sex pants <laughs> <laughs> and that is why this movie persists i worked on the the troll hunters franchise for a while and the main character jim he has this really neat suit of armor and he has these throwing blades and they call them glaives oh and nice definitely an illusion to crawl and you see the glaive there was a south park episode where it <laughs> kind of sh shot across the screen i think <laughs> it was in ready player one like that the movie does have its fans and its legacy so uh, you know there's that for sure most people who enjoy sci-fi or fantasy know what you mean when you say crawl. Even if they don't literally know what you mean, <laughs> they know crawl, they know the movie, they know the glaive. So it does live on. And just one one anecdote that I read that I thought was kind of funny, like the director, Peter Yates, he's like, this was his first and only genre fantasy movie. I think he did kind of like drama and, and, and you know crime thriller stuff before that. Um, I guess he was so dissatisfied with the process that in the middle of production he just took a vacation with his family i forget where they went but he was like gone for a couple of weeks <laughs> what a horrible message that must send to the crew <laughs> you know like i'm out i need a break and i kind of feel that a little bit in it too because like to your point sebastian about like george lucas focusing on what what makes a, a fantasy or a sci-fi story work like there's an obvious love for those things there obviously you know loved Flash Gordon and wanted to do his own Flash Gordon and mixed it with all these other things. I just don't know that the people who made this movie were like as steeped in fantasy as as they could have been. 
Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting at where I'm saying there's a sort of cynicism to it where they're like, oh, let's make a Star Wars and let's get a guy. Who, castles. Right. And let's get a guy who right. directed Bullet, like as if he'd be a <laughs> right, good go. fit for this, which I love Bullet, but you wouldn't think that guy's going to churn out <laughs> your next fantasy hit. And also we when we talked about, um, I think it was Battlefield Earth, we were saying like, there was not one appealing location in any of that. And like for Crawl, for them to be selling you on this whole world, it's a pretty bleak place to live, you know, like with all the painful ways to die and everything's kind of like a dismal swamp, right? There's not like many pretty places in Crawl other than that field they walk through at the end. That mountain was pretty nice. What, with the glaive? Yeah, when he climbs up the mountain, yeah. it looked a lot like the sort of stuff you see in Lord of the Rings. But to your point, yes, it's not like Pandora or anything like that. It's, it's right. pretty miserable <laughs> and crawl. All right, guys, well, I'm going to go hop on a fire mare and consult the Emerald Seer as to the location of the Black Fortress and wield the power of the glaive to rule all of Krull! <laughs> <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. (laughs) 